Brussels first. This is not good news. Paris Swain, Liberty Writers News, reports how the challenge has been officially accepted. North Korean state-run relations to many news agencies reported moments ago that North Korea will turn up the heat and warned it would carry out. We're continuing our series called The Simple Truth. Um, and as I've thought about this series, as I was planning it ahead of time, I, uh, one of the passages that stuck out to me about the topic of truth is a story about a guy named Pilate that comes in the Gospel of John. In fact, if you have your Bibles with you, turn with if you would to, to John chapter 18. Uh, Pilate is talked about in the Gospels, but he's also talked about in history books. Um, and historians tell us about him outside of what Scripture does. Um, Several historians, Tacitus, Philo of Alexandria, and Josephus, probably the most well-known historian at the time, uh, let us know that he was the fifth prefect uh, of the Roman province of Judea. It was basically ensuring the peace of this area, Judea, southern Israel, uh, during the time of Jesus' ministry. From 26 until 36 AD, he was in that role, and his job was to keep the peace. But in John 18, he's struggling to be able to do that. Because there are people that have brought Jesus to him in order for him to basically get rid of uh, Jesus for them. And so there's this concern, there's this struggle, uh, the Jewish leaders are turning him over, and the Jewish leaders need political authority to be able to basically get rid of Jesus. And so it stands on Pilate to make the decision about if Jesus is a threat or not. And this is what we read beginning in John chapter 18, verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Uh, Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are king then, said Pilate. Here's where Jesus speaks that important truth about truth that we're going to discuss today as this series is all focused on the second half of verse 37. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. What is truth? That's the question we've been uh, trying to discuss in this series is what is it that we believe? What is true in this world? But What difference does it make in our lives? It doesn't matter if we claim to believe something, if it doesn't change our values, our priorities, and so forth. This is the question that Pilate asked. I'm going to come back to this story in a little bit because Pilate actually knows the truth, we'll discover. But we'll come back to that in a bit. Let's begin with prayer as we we start this morning. God, we we ask that your truth would be apparent this morning, that you uh, you would silence the voices of confusion in our world, God, that you would move us beyond just some kind of conceptual belief about who you are to an actual belief that changes the way we walk and the way we talk, the way we, we, we share good news, the way our lives look. This morning, God, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. How many of you have ever had questions about God? I, I tend to always be thinking about who is God? I think about a lot of questions. What does God look like? Probably looks a little different than some of the conceptions I had growing up. What is God's character? How can a God be all good and all powerful and yet suffering be a reality in the world? I know some of you walked through that in real tangible ways in your life. Uh, 
Is God more like the God who strikes down Uzzah and Ananias and Sapphira? Or is God more like the God of the story Jesus tells about the prodigal son and his father who welcomes his son back home? These are questions that I think a lot about. What is God like? And this question leads to simple truth number four, I think, in a helpful way this morning. The fourth simple truth is this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. Because Jesus clearly shares who he is. Now, if you read in the Old Testament at all, which I hope many of you are, there are many times that I read in the Old Testament pictures of who God is, and I have a little bit of a question of the way God is presented. I'm not sure I like it. Particularly in those moments that commands the slaughter of innocent people or commands about regressive ideas with women or about slaves. And I know some of you, you have the gift of faith, right? Faith just comes easy for you. It's a spiritual gift. I believe God bestows on some to just come to faith very easily. But for those of you who struggle more, who question more, you're a little bit more like me. It's hard sometimes when those who have the gift of faith respond to the real questions you're struggling with, with this verse in Isaiah 55. I'm sure most of us have heard it that have been through doubt in our lives. The passage says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That doesn't help when I'm struggling through faith issues. I know it's true. I know that God is more mysterious than I can ever know. I know he's, he's larger than I am. I'm never going to fully understand God on this side of eternity. But that doesn't mean I have to like what I read when scripture comes up with some pictures of God that I struggle with. But I am comforted by this simple truth when those questions come up. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. This is what Paul argues in the book of Colossians. In fact, turn there if you, if you would. This is one of the main passages I want to come to. There's going to be a lot of scripture today we're going to go to. But Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15, listen to these words. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Verse 15 says it right there. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. He's the image of the invisible God. Have you ever tried to explain God to a a child? I'm grateful for all those who are teachers that are doing that right now in our classes, right? It's amazing what our kids pick up. But but sometimes my kids will ask me, who is God? Or I've got to answer that question. And it's harder to answer than you would think, isn't it? It's hard to describe what God looks like. Like the things kids want to know, we really don't know. There's a mystery to a lot of that. So nearly every time I try to respond with some kind of metaphor, because there's all kinds of metaphors about who God is in Scripture. So I'll say, well, Scripture's full of metaphors for God. God is our shepherd. God is our father. God is a a rock. God is king. And these are helpful metaphors. But if you try to tell your child one of these things, like, for instance, God is a rock, that's only going to spawn a lot more questions, right? 
Well, is he an igneous rock or a sedimentary rock when they get into school, right? Is he marble or granite? Well, not exactly. Or how about God as father, right? Have you ever tried that one? Because it, when they understand a little more how this all works, the question would be, well, who's my mother? Which is a little harder to figure out, right? You see the problem here. And that's why Jesus is such a help to us. Because there's so many other religions where gods are invisible and there's no visible way to see who God is. But Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And everyone loves Jesus, don't they? Even the most hardened skeptic, biggest criticism about Christianity doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. It more often has to do with us as Christians or uh, pictures of God they may have been handed. Think about the number of books over the last 25 years that have been written by, by atheists. Uh, authors like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and Stephen Hawking. They love to share about how regressive God is based mostly on Old Testament passages. But few of them spill much ink at all on the nature of Jesus and who he is. Jesus claims the same thing that Paul claims in John 14. When Philip asks Jesus to show the disciples who God the Father is, I want you to listen to what Jesus says in response to Philip's question. This is John chapter 14. John 14, verses 9 and 10. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Jesus says, hey, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the one who testifies to the truth about God, who God is. Jesus is the clearest picture that we have of who God the Father is. And that means that anyone who lived before the time of Jesus had a less clear picture of who God is than those of us who've seen Jesus or have lived afterward. The Bible seems to, to more clearly reveal God as it moves toward Jesus. It's really interesting how this works out. There's an interesting passage in the book of Exodus I want to take us to briefly that talks about this idea of kind of God progressively revealing himself through Scripture. This is Exodus 6, verse 2. Listen closely to this. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. It's an interesting passage, isn't it? You noticed this before? It's a groundbreaking thought. A few details are important for understanding these verses. First, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew God by a name. And it says there, the name is God Almighty. The Lord Almighty. And, and, and the Hebrew background for that is the word El Shaddai. Uh, we used to sing a song about that. But, but God reveals himself to Moses as Lord. Lord. If you're reading in your, your Bible, you'll notice that each letter in that word Lord is capitalized. And anytime you see in the Bible, all four of those letters for Lord capitalized, it's actually a representation or a replacement for the divine name, Y-H-W-H. We sometimes pronounce it as Yahweh. I'll actually come back to that in a bit. But here's what I want you to notice. God revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in a way. But he further reveals who he is by his divine name to Moses. Isn't that amazing? I've never noticed this before. There's this revelation that God gives to Moses that wasn't given before. And God keeps at this. And this makes sense. Because when we teach our children 
about who God is, we reveal God to them a little bit by a little bit, don't we? You think about the children's Bibles that we hand them, right? It, it reveals who God is at an age-appropriate level. When it tells the story of Noah and the ark, it tends to focus on what? The fact that God saved Noah and his family. That Noah's righteous and, and, and God saved them through this ark. Those children's Bibles don't tend to tell the story about those outside of the ark, right? We tell that story a little bit later in the journey. All of a sudden they have questions and they ask about, well, yes, God saved them, but what about this? Or how many of you remember the first time you stumbled upon Song of Songs? I'm guessing it wasn't at a bedtime story your parents read to you, right? I remember the first time I stumbled upon this book, and I know some of the youth group may be fumbling through their pages trying to find it now, but I remember as a youth group member that said to me, have you seen this passage in Song of Songs? And I cannot remember the rest of that sermon that day, I can guarantee you that, but I still have memorized some of those verses. Some of you, have you not read this book, by the way? You ought to check this out later today. We progressively reveal who God is. We start with the building blocks and we keep building on those blocks. We teach our kids about God in a progressive way. We save some questions for later on. And God does the very same thing with Israel. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians. Paul, Paul writes about this idea in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which, listen to this, was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Paul says this mystery of Christ, it wasn't revealed to previous generations. Now the Spirit has revealed even more than what was known before. This mystery of Gentiles' inclusion through the Holy Spirit. But maybe the most important verse, at least for me personally, has been in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Listen again to this way that God progressively reveals his nature throughout Scripture. Hebrews 1 verse 1. In the, pa- in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom Also, he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. What's the writer of Hebrews saying? In the past, I spoke through messengers. I spoke through prophets. But in these last days, I've made it even more clear who I am because Jesus, the son, is the exact representation of who I am. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. Jesus is the exact representation of God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And I got to tell you, this truth has saved my faith over the last decade. Because I can't figure out everything there is to know about God. There's a lot of passages I don't know what to do with. But if what the writer of Hebrews says is correct, if Colossians 1 is correct, and I believe that, then all of a sudden I don't have to have everything answered. But I know that if Jesus is what God is like, that's worth following. That's a God I can support. That's a God that I love. You know, we're right back in the middle of this series. We're, we're in lesson four, in the middle of this lesson, in a seven-part series on the simple truths. 
And I don't think it's an accident that this is, you know, lesson number four. Because Jesus is the center. Jesus is the bullseye of our faith. Not every scripture is of equal importance. Jesus talks to the Pharisees. He says, here's the matters of weightier importance. The books all throughout. Hosea talks about, you know, what, do I, what does the Lord require of you? And he talks about a few things. But the most important passage that talks about some things being primary comes in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writes again to this church. And he talks about what's most important. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. So Paul's reminding them of the gospel, but he clarifies even more in verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. What is it that's most important? What's most primary? Paul says what's most important is what's happened to Jesus. Jesus is the sinner. He died. He was buried. He was resurrected. This is the center of our faith, this action that happened over a series of three days. And that's why we ask the questions we do when someone's baptized. Have you thought about this before? We could have come up with a lot of questions to ask when someone makes a decision to follow Jesus. We don't ask a hundred questions that you have to pass at a you know, 70% rate to pass to get into the baptistry. Generally, it comes down to about three questions. One of those has to do with these events. Do you believe that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he was resurrected on the third day? Another question generally is about the son of God. Is, do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Do you believe he's of divine origin? He's not just a human, but he's the Messiah of God. And finally, are you ready to make him the Lord of your life? Now, not all those questions necessarily show up in every confession, but we tend to group our, our questions into those three. And why is that? Because this is the bullseye. This is the target. Jesus is the center. And every single one of those questions has to do with who he was, what he did, and who he is in our lives. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says something quite remarkable about confessing Jesus as Lord. It seems counterintuitive at first hearing, but listen closely if you would. First Corinthians 12, verse 3. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's counterintuitive, isn't it? It seems real easy to be able to just utter three simple words. Jesus is Lord. But what Scripture says, what Paul says, is you can't utter that phrase unless the Spirit brings you to a point to say so. And this is why we ask this question. Do you, are you ready for Jesus to be Lord? It is such a vital question. It's such a vital understanding. So to summarize again, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. Jesus is the son of God. He is Lord. He died. He was buried. He was resurrected. Most of us in this room have come to affirm these beliefs, haven't we? We said these things are true. But the question we've been asking throughout this series is not, do we believe those things are true up here? The question comes to, what action comes as a result of that belief? If we believe that Jesus is Lord, then what is it that we're going to base our belief in? What are we going to trust in? 
What changes in our lives as a result of that? That's the question I want us to ask. So if you believe Jesus is Lord, what difference does that make in your life? And if it doesn't make a difference, if there's no priorities changed, if if no values changed, if there's no action taken, my question would be, do we really believe that? How are we noticeably different if we believe that than those who choose not to believe that Jesus is Lord? Which brings me back to all those times in the Old Testament where the divine name Yahweh is shown as Lord in capital letters. That decision actually goes back to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. It's a commitment to try not to break one of the Ten Commandments. This is Exodus 20 verse 7. It's the third commandment we're we're given. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, other translations, or you may have memorized it this way, it says don't uh, take the Lord's name in vain. I still remember the first time I was challenged about that command in my life. I'd come home with a term that I decided I would try out at the dinner table. And uh, it it won't sound as bad as you think it was when I say it, but I remember saying the word geez. It's something I picked up from some friends at school. And I remember my parents just saying, you want to finish that? What do you mean? It's just a word my friends say at school. Well, they were trying to say, look, we honor the name of God. And, and Jesus just a shortened way of saying the word Jesus. We don't take God's name in vain. We don't lightly say the name of God. Whether you're, It's not okay to curse using his name. It's not okay to use it flippantly. We honor the name of God. I still remember that at the dinner table that night. And the Jewish people have taken this command very seriously throughout the generations. In fact, most religiously observant Jews do not pronounce the name of Yahweh. If you notice, sometimes when they write even God, they'll write G-D. The reason is they don't want to misuse God's name. They don't want to take it lightly in any way. They often replace it with the word Adonai, which means Lord, which is actually why they've translated this as Lord in capital letters in our, our Bibles today. It's still this desire to, not, to honor God's name, to not misuse it in any way. So anytime you see Lord in there, it's actually a, a, a substitute for the divine name, wanting to hold on to the third commitment and not break it in any way. God's name is worthy of being honored. But this morning, I'd like to suggest that misusing God's name or taking God's name in vain is is actually much larger than just making sure we never curse using God's name. Because when we say Jesus is Lord, when we commit ourselves to Jesus in baptism, we become Christians, which means we bear the divine name. Jesus, Christian, is actually the very thing we designate ourselves by. And so when we're Christians, it means we bear his name. We identify ourselves as persons who are following Jesus, a person who belongs to Christ, which means when people look at us, they make decisions about who God is in the 21st century by our own behavior. A lot of people have rejected God, not because of who God is, but because of the way his people have lived out faith. And what that means is if we bear the name of Jesus, but we fail to live out the commands of Jesus. That's a misuse of his name. It's a misuse to bear the name of Jesus and not in any way intend to live the way he taught us to live. And that's a heavy thought, isn't it? To think that misusing God's name isn't just about learning to tame our tongues, but it's about learning to tame our lives in a certain direction. In the first century, it was common for people to believe that Caesar was Lord. It was a phrase that would have rolled off the tongue because that was the belief in that time period. So when the early Christians proclaimed that Jesus was Lord, they were making a claim not just about who Jesus was, they were also making a claim about who Caesar wasn't. 
They were saying, we're committing our lives to Lord Jesus. His way will be our way. This was a phrase, Jesus is Lord with teeth in it in the first century. And sometimes when I hear people refer to Jesus being Lord, it, it sounds more like a get out of jail free card. It's like a phrase that gains us entrance, like a password into heaven one day. Or in the words of Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, and just a footnote that most often miss, he says a lot of us are really just like vampire Christians who only want a little blood for their sins, but nothing more to do with Jesus. Until heaven when they have to associate with him. That's a hard word, isn't it? Sometimes this has been the way we've taught is the blood of Jesus covers us. And that's it. Is Jesus just a way to heaven for you? Or is Jesus actually Lord who teaches you the best way of life possible? I heard a preacher talk recently about the two steps to interpretation that most of us really uh, live by. The first is we read scripture and find out what did Jesus have to say? The second step is this is why we don't actually have to do what Jesus said. Think about some of the things that Jesus taught. Love your enemies. Is that something we're really supposed to do? Or is that just the hyperbole that Jesus meant about treating them kindly? It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of an eel than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Is is Jesus right or is that just a saying that no longer applies anymore? Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Is that just a suggestion or is that an actual command that God has for us? Sometimes it's, it's as if we pat Jesus on the head and treat him like he's a naive first century rabbi who just doesn't understand the realities of the 21st century world. Well, Jesus, if you were living now, it wouldn't be so serious. But Jesus, it's not practical to love our enemies because they want us dead. And yet this is Jesus' fate, isn't it? He lived out what he believed so much, he ended up on a cross as a result of it. The threat was real then, just as it is today. He lived what he preached. Sometimes in my life, if I'm honest, it's not that I don't know the truth. It's that the truth is just too inconvenient or costly to live out. In fact, that's the problem for Pilate in the Gospel of Luke. I want to come back to that story in Luke 23, if you turn there with me. I want you to notice this guy who says, what is truth? That we think maybe represents our generation. He actually knew the truth after he answered that question and investigated. He talks about the truth. Listen closely. This is Luke 23, beginning in verse 4. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. Drop down to verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time, he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. The one they asked for. And surrendered Jesus to their will. 
The same man who asked, what is truth? That we wonder in our culture, maybe it's hard to come at truth. The truth is he knew the truth. He investigated and three separate times he tries to let him off. He knows that Jesus is innocent. The problem is the truth was far too inconvenient and too costly for him to live out. What I wonder is, in my own life, how often do, is it not a question of what the truth is or what the reality is or what God desires? The, the real reality is I know the truth. It's just too inconvenient to actually practice it. It's easier to look at the commands of Jesus and figure out a way out of them than it is to really believe that what Jesus taught could be the path or the way that leads to life. Church, I know our desire is to be a people who are set on the way of Jesus. That's why you're here is to learn. It's to train up your children and your grandchildren in this way. You believe that this is the best way of life possible. And it's easy to say Jesus is Lord, isn't it? It's easy in a moment of decision in a baptistry to decide these things. The question I want us to struggle with in our groups this week is this. If we believe this, since we believe this, since we believe that Jesus is Lord, what has to change in my life? to more fully reflect that truth in my actions. What teaching of Jesus am I trying to to get rid of and act like it's not the best teaching so that it's easier on me and it's not as consequential? I want to challenge you to talk about this in your groups. Bring to your groups the the biggest questions you have about who Jesus is and how he reveals the Father and and the commands that are a struggle most for you to follow. I want you to discuss those things. I want us to walk out of our groups with a real sense Yes, we know the truth and we've committed to Jesus as Lord, but if we truly believe that, it's got to make a difference in our lives. If Jesus is Lord, we have to trust his teaching. We have to trust his commands because it's a better way of life. This is what I found. When I follow his commands, life goes better. This isn't just about eternal life. This isn't about just getting his blood. It's coming to trust that the way he teaches and lives is better than the other way. And in my best moments, I discover that. You know what? Even in my worst moments, I discover that because I find the hardship and the consequences of a life that's lived outside of his will. I want to close with a prayer this morning as we lean into this truth that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's, he is Lord. He is he's the son of God. We believe those things. Let's live like it this week. God, we, we come before you and we ask, we ask for your grace as we talked about last week because we know we are not perfectly living your way. But God, we know that you're a God who, like Jesus, invites sinners back home. You're a God like Jesus who, who invites us to, to, to find the way through Jesus, to find our truth through Jesus, to find our life in him. God, I confess this morning, and I, I invite all of us in the room to confess this morning those places that we've not fully turned over to you, those places that we've basically set aside your commands for another way. God, help us to love our enemies. Help us to start by just loving the person next door in better ways than we are. God, help us to, to, to hear your word about not worrying and trying to find a way into it to realize that's actually a command that leads to a healthier life, God. So many of us are caught up in fear, caught up in concern, and God, we don't trust how good you really are. So God, we give ourselves back over to you today and to your teaching and to your way. We, we trust that Jesus is Lord. That's our confession. Help us to live as if that's the case. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.